Welcome to another episode of The Breakdown. The state of Alberta politics is pretty wild. And one of the things that we have to stop and consider from time to time is if we want to know where we are, it's very helpful to know where we've been and how we got here. And there has been the release of a new body of work that is hopefully going to help uh, make a little bit of sense of just how Alberta politics has gotten to the place that it is currently over the last four years, maybe going back a little bit farther. We're very excited to welcome one of the editors and contributors to this weighty tome to the show today, uh, Dr. Dwayne Bratt. Thank you so much for joining us. Happy to be here, Nate. So the book is called, and I'm going to hold up the copy that I got at the book launch because I love my copy... Uh, the book is called Blue Storm, The Rise and Fall of Jason Kenney. Before we get into the, the contents of the book, can you talk a little bit about sort of the, the origin of the book, the impetus? How did this thing come to be? Well, first, I am so glad that you have a copy of the book because I do not yet have a copy of the book because you cannot find a copy of the book. Um, we had a book launch on Tuesday where they brought one box of books. Uh, which is about 20. And I said, well, why? <laughs> you knew there were going to be 100 people there. Why did you bring one box? They go, that's all we've got left. Um, and so uh, it's it's a sellout, uh, but they didn't, you know, they didn't print 100,000 copies, but it's a good problem to have uh, that it uh, that it's this popular because it is uh, a book that I think Albertans are very interested in. But the reason why it's a bestseller is because people are buying it in the rest of the country. They all want to know what the hell is going on here in Alberta. And hopefully this, this book helps. But this is, this book can be read on its own, but it's a sequel uh, to a previous book that we wrote called The Orange Chinook. Uh, and typically there's not a lot of books on provincial politics. Um, of this sort. There are after every Canadian election, uh, but not after provincial elections. But we felt after changing governments for the first time in 44 years that it was worth doing. And so uh, that's where the Orange Chinook idea came from, which was a book on the 2015 election and then the first three and a half years of of the Notley government. And we knew going into the 2019 election that there was going to be a change in government. And that was evident far beyond uh, the actual campaign. And so the second book, Blue Storm, was going to be basically the second half of the same story. So you have this insurgency, NDP knocks off the dynasty, and then the dynasty comes back. So the original working title, which of course we couldn't use, was I was going to call it The Empire Strikes Back. Right. You know, you've uh, not only destroyed the Death Star, uh, but the conservatives regrouped, they unified, they brought in a stronger leader uh, and they won a massive majority in in April of 2019. So that was going to be the story about this restoration. And I tell a story in uh, the introduction. I was working in the Big Four building for, for Global on Election Night and 
interestingly, next to um, another commentator by the name of Daniel Smith, who's gone on to another job. Uh, so that, that's kind of interesting. But when the, the night was over, I was chatting with some staffers that I knew, and they were saying this is a return to conservatism. They weren't talking about replacing Rachel Notley and the NDP. They were talking about replacing Jim Prentice and Alison Redford and Ed Stelma. This was Ralph Klein of the 1990s, not Ralph Klein of the 2000s, who was writing out checks and increasing spending. This was the Ralph Klein who blew up hospitals, right? So this is where they wanted to go. And I'm thinking at the time um, that they wanted to bring back fiscal conservative back to the 1990s. But it was also going to be the most socially conservative government that we have seen since Ernest Manning in the 1960s. And in fact, I would argue even more socially conservative, given all of the changes around us that have occurred during this time, they wanted to try to bring it back. So this is what the book was going to be about, is how they were going to reset Alberta fiscally and socially after what they saw of decades of, of leftward drift. So that was what the book was going to be. Um, then things change. Uh, in March of 2020, COVID hits, and it derails the conservative agenda. I can picture Jason Kenney's office with this calendar and these to-do lists uh, because he was an organizer, and they were going to do this here and this there and blah, 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 blah. And then COVID comes, and it just threw that calendar away and they they had to do a lot of things they didn't want to do. So the book was then going to be about how did this one provincial government do things that in its heart it didn't want to do but realized it had to do and it was going to be the COVID story. Great, so we've got the restoration story, we got the COVID story, that should make for a great book. And then Jason Kenney leaves and it's hard to imagine someone in April of 2019, who I would argue was the most powerful conservative in the country. Uh, I was at an event where he spoke, Scott Moe spoke, Andrew Scheer, who was conservative leader at the time, spoke, and nobody was there and nobody paid attention when Scheer spoke, uh, but they were all in the room when Kenny spoke. Um, there is a chapter in the book that compares Doug Ford and Jason Kenney. Well, Doug Ford was like the little brother to Jason Kenney in April of 2019. Doug Ford's still standing. Doug Ford won re-election. Uh, Jason Kenney's gone. So how did that happen? And that becomes the third part of the book. So those three themes, conservative restoration, COVID, and the rise and fall of, of Jason Kenney um, in this in this book. And so it's a very, it, it's become a very different book than Orange Chinook. Uh, the Orange Chinook, we had to put into context of the 2015 election. We had to explain how the conservatives governed for 44 years. We had to look at how they lost, but also how the NDP won. So there was a lot more coverage sort of pre-2015 and the election and uh, maybe, two-thirds of the book on um, the Notley years. This book is very different. We get rid of the election in one chapter and then focus on uh, Kenny. 
Now, you have a boatload of contributors to this book, and there's some of the, the, the heaviest hitters in Alberta politics analysis, I'll say, um, from s- certainly the, some of the most qualified from an academic standpoint who are, are weighing in on this. Um, what, are the, what are the chapters that really kind of jump out to you without obviously picking favorites? So first, I, I want to talk about the design of that because a lot of people that aren't in the academy don't understand the importance of edited books. And in fact, I would argue students don't really understand edited books because the amount of times I have to redo citations because they assume that the editors have written every chapter, right? Um, it, it's it's a way of bringing in expertise from different angles. So it's a common tool that's used um, uh, in academic publishing. But there's a bit more to it than that. And, and here I've got to refer to, to David Terrace, um, my, my late colleague, who uh, worked at the University of Calgary for two decades and then uh, took a job as the Ralph Klein Chair in Communication Studies uh, here at Mount Royal. And we started to collaborate on a number of different projects, but Orange Chinook was the biggest one. And what he wanted was it anchored at Mount Royal. So instead of Mount Royal colleagues working with editors at the University of Calgary, the University of Alberta, the two big schools, he wanted it the other way around. And that was a deliberate strategy. And the other, and this was David's background, is he wanted it very multidisciplinary. So these are not just political scientists, right? These are economists. These are journalists. These are communication professors. These are justice professors. These are education professors. He really wanted it multidisciplinary. And and the third element of the design of the book, I think, was to make it accessible to the public. We didn't want one of those books that sits on a library shelf, you know, and gets taken out, you know, a couple times every few years, or maybe is used as a textbook in a classroom. We wanted this read by those Albertans who weren't in school, haven't been in school in a while, but are very interested in politics to get a rigorous analysis, but written in an accessible manner. So not a whole lot of jargon in there. And so that was the design of Orange Chinook. And when we started the work on on, on Blue Storm, and this was before David got sick, he, you know, we we used the same system. some of the people we used from Orange Chinook to Blue Storm were identical. Um, others we knew we needed fresh voices. Um, so, you know, Ron Kneebone from the University of Calgary uh, wrote the piece in the Orange Chinook on Alberta finances. Well, Trevor Toom, who's written it this time, has become the new star in Alberta politics on that. And that's why we recruited Te- Trevor to do that. Uh, likewise, Jared Wesley had just come back to Alberta when, when Orange Chinook had come out uh, from, from Manitoba. Uh, he hadn't really started working on Alberta politics, but by the time the Blue Storm had come out, he was clearly someone that we needed to, uh, to bring in. And quite frankly, there were people who were a bit of, of a pain in the ass. We didn't want to work with them again, uh, so uh, they they were excluded. Um, so that was that was the process of of how you choose people. And further to that, typically the highest spending portfolios, the most important portfolios for any provincial government are healthcare and education. With Orange Chinook, we didn't have a chapter on healthcare. 
We didn't have a chapter on education because quite frankly, there wasn't a lot of change that the NDP brought in. But we knew in advance because the UCP campaigned on it, they wanted a curriculum review. We knew uh, that they wanted challenges around healthcare and the McKinnon report and all of those things. So we made sure that we had chapters on healthcare, uh, education, both K to 12 and post-secondary education. And we thought, well, what better than getting an education professor to talk about the education system? So that's kind of on the design and structure and recruitment of the, of the book. Okay. You got a favorite chapter? There's a, there's a couple. Um, I think that the, the, the most important chapter is Lisa Young's piece on COVID. Um, it's the longest. We gave her a lot more room because it, it it's the major theme of the book. And it covers so many other chapters that as a standalone, you know, Lisa is, is in there. Likewise, uh, Jared Wesley's piece on the Fair Deal panel, I think is really important because it sets the stage for what follows, which is Daniel Smith's Sovereignty Act. You, he doesn't talk about the Sovereignty Act, but you cannot understand the Sovereignty Act without reading Jared's piece about where it came from. Uh, but as far as the most fun chapter, it's gotta be Chase and Tyler's chapter on the blue truck. Um, I, I'm just disappointed we couldn't get a picture of the blue truck. There's a long legal story about that, but you would think that this isn't just a humorous meme. There's actually a lot of metaphorical, symbolic information embedded in that chapter. And, and I think it's not just a fun read, it actually tries to intellectualize something that we, we knew was occurring and now we know why it was occurring. Okay. Um, now I haven't had, I only, the book launch was Tuesday. We're recording this on uh, March 3rd. Uh, I worked yesterday, so I haven't had a whole lot of time to get into the, the, the completeness of the book, but I have read some of it. And what stands out to me, in addition to what was talked about at the book launch, is there's this sort of theme of, the, if we're going to talk about the weaknesses of, of Mr. Kenny and his his role as, as leader of the UCP, as well as the his role as premier, the, the two big things that seem to have largely contributed to his downfall are sort of this, this sense of like arrogance and hubris. I'm wondering if you could talk about that for a couple minutes. So when, when people talk about the, the rise and fall, they quickly jump to COVID, that that's the reason that Kenny's not here, you know, COVID tossed him out. Well, every jurisdiction in Canada had to deal with COVID. Uh, Justin Trudeau was reelected as a liberal. Doug Ford was elected as a conservative. Scott Moe was elected, reelected as a conservative. John Horgan was elected as an NDPer. So it's not just COVID. Uh, I think there are certain ways that COVID played itself out in Alberta that were different from the rest of the country, but it wasn't just COVID. And I think there's two others. One is what you just cited, and that was the the, the hubris and the, the arrogance of, of Kenny. And I would throw in, I think, a lack of understanding of modern Alberta. He had been an MP from Calgary from 1997 to 2016, but he never spent a lot of time in Alberta. 
you know, he was either spending his time in Ottawa or, you know, campaigning and recruiting in Brampton and Mississauga and Surrey and Richmond. Um, he didn't spend a lot of time here. And so my hypothesis was his understanding of Alberta is where it was when he left, which was mid-1990s. Uh, and probably the best symbolic illustration of that was not the blue truck. It was the Sky Palace dinner. And it's not because they broke COVID regulations and they had to bring out the tape measures to show that they broke COVID regulations. It was they did it on the patio of the Sky Palace. No one living in Alberta during the Redford years would have dared to do that. I don't think Rachel Notley even went into the penthouse, uh, the, the Sky Palace. Uh, she obviously went into the federal building, uh, but there's no, there's no photos of her on the patio, nor should there be. And yet there was Kenny. And I think that's a clear illustration of his lack of understanding of, of modern Alberta and just how toxic that location has become in Alberta politics. His relationship with caucus, and, and it's interesting because the vast majority of those caucus members were elected for the first time in 2019. There weren't a whole lot of legacy members, you know, um, Drew Barnes, Rick McIver, Mike Ellis, uh, Richard Godfrey. I'm probably missing a few, but you could probably count them in less than, you know, two hands. So most of these were recruited and brought in by Kenny. They were supposed to be Kenny people, but he didn't have a good relationship with caucus. He rarely spoke to caucus. He was dismissive of caucus. He believed he was the smartest man in any room he walked into. And he is a smart man. I'm going to get hate mail for this, but I keep saying it. He is a very smart, intelligent, hardworking man. But you have to fake it sometimes. You actually have to listen to others because you may be smarter than them, but they may have insights that you don't have. So this becomes a problem for him. And his staffers, and one of the criticisms that I got confidentially of the book is they said there was no chapter on staffing. And because the staffers played a role, they became the attack dogs for Kenny. You should not know who the premier's chief of staff is. You should not know who the press secretaries are. You should not know who the issues managers are. But we did. We did know who Brock Harrison and, and Matt Walsh and, and the rest of them down the line, Steve Buick. Um, and it's because Kenny lives and breathes politics his entire life. It was a nine, it was a 24-7 job, 365 days of the week, three decades long, and he surrounded himself with like-minded people. Um, and so you got this hostile environment where anybody who dared criticize the government was an NDP hack. Um, you know, if you were a columnist, you were an NDP hack. If you were a doctor, you worked for the NDP. Uh, if you uh, were a professor, you would get called out by being a member of the NDP. Poor Melanie Thomas gets called out because when she was a young university student, she ran in a no-win riding for the NDP. And so fast forward 25 years ago, NDP or Melanie Thomas, which is ridiculous, but that's the way they operate. So that's where the hubris comes in. But I would add another element that you didn't mention, and this is in the chapter by David Stewart and Anthony Sayers from the University of Calgary, 
looking at the internal workings of the United Conservative Party. This is not a united party. Um, when the federal uh, progressive conservatives uh, merged with uh, reform in the Canadian Alliance, they have lost multiple elections. It, it took them a while um, before they decided to merge it. And in fact, it, it was a by-election defeat in a very winnable riding in Ontario, where they finished third behind the, the PCs and the Liberals that forced Stephen Harper to realize he needed to merge. The, in this case, it occurs after one election defeat. Um, the realization that they had to merge to keep the, uh, the damn socialists out of office. But that's the only thing they had in common. And so Stewart and Sayers go through uh, a whole series of surveys and UCP party resolutions to show how divided the party was. Often the media would go, well, they had 12 party resolutions. They all passed, therefore they're united. Well, there's a difference between passing a resolution with 98% and passing a resolution with 58%. And when you look at those 58% resolutions, that's where you start to see the divisions in, in the party. So in the downfall of Kenny, it's COVID exacerbates tensions that already existed within the party, uh, as well as the leadership style of, of Jason Kenney. And for all of Danielle Smith's faults, she actually listens to caucus and is giving a voice to caucus. And I think that is that is evident in, in her leadership style. And that's the reason that caucus has been fairly quiet uh, um, towards her. Uh, because she is a listener. Kenny was not a listener. It's interesting how you say that it, it was it, the UCP wasn't uh, united. You're using a bit of a past tense there, but it, it almost seems like under Danielle Smith. Oh, they're still one, not united, uh, despite okay. <laughs> this mask. Um, and, and I think they've got if, if they regardless of whether they win or lose the election. There are still internal challenges within the UCP because the only thing that these people have in common is they're, they're opposed to the NDP. But if you win that election and you've defeated the NDP, then those tensions come up to the forefront once again, as they did under Kenny. And if you lose to the NDP, well, then all the knives are out because then it'll be, well, if this faction hadn't been promoted, we would have won, or if that faction hadn't existed, we would have won, and the, and the civil war will, will begin again. Uh, because on fiscal conservatism versus social conservatism versus moderates versus ideologues versus rural versus urban, this isn't one big happy family. One of the things that I'd like to get your take on is it seems like uh, there's a couple of different possibilities for the UCP. One of them is that that inevitable split. But I'm also curious. I mean, if federal politics is not my sandbox, but it seems like what's happened with the conservatives federally is, you know, there was the, the, the merger and then the splits and the mergers and the splits, wash, rinse, repeat. But ultimately what has ended up happening, to my eyes at least, is we have a federal conservative party that seems to have done a very effective job of, over time, 
getting rid of the the moderates and it's the 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 window on on what is conservatism has moved farther and farther over to the right federally the ndp and the the liberals have been able to take advantage of that to some degree um but the climate in alberta is very different so i'm curious do you think that there's how do you see that playing out do you think that that there will be a a a splitting of the UCPs to a progressive conservative party style and a wild rose party style, or will the, the, the direction that they seem to be going, which is more wild rose, uh, do you think they'll just eat the whole thing? Where I don't think you'll see a split off uh, from the progressive moderate wing to try to form a party. They're, they're not very good at forming their own party. Uh, <clears throat> Where the, uh, just at, look at the experience of the Alberta party, you know, building a centrist party, not very good uh, because you need energy, you need, uh, you need anger. And so the split will come at the further right of the UCP, if you can imagine a further right to the UCP or the most conservative wing of the party splitting itself off. Aaron O'Toole federally realized the danger that the conservatives were moving into, and he tried to move them back to the to the center. And I think there were a lot of conservative candidates that held their nose at that, Pierre Polyev being one, basically being, okay, we'll try this. We don't endorse it. We're not going to campaign on, on, you know, a price on carbon. Uh, we're not going to campaign on your gun stuff. But if it works, hey, we're in government. But if it doesn't work, the knives are going to be out the next day. And they were very quickly. Who was the first prominent conservative to start criticizing Aaron O'Toole? It was Jenny Byrne, who later ran the campaign for Pierre Polyev. And so Polyev's campaign was, let's be true to ourselves. And, and this is the way we're going to run. There has been a partisan sorting federally. There was a time where if you were a liberal or you were a PC, it wouldn't take much to basically for the PC to become a liberal and liberal become a PC. They were kind of interchangeable. Um, but over time, the liberals have gotten more to the left and the conservatives have gone much more to the, to the right. In Alberta, we've, we've faced a different dynamic. I would make the argument that the NDP has moved much closer to the center. Uh, I mean, they're, they're supportive oil and gas, they're supportive pipelines, uh, and what they didn't do, they didn't raise royalties, they didn't build a refinery, you know, they didn't, um, you know, massively increase taxes, you know, despite the banner of socialism that gets banded about, they're not a socialist party. The federal NDP are, which is why this whole idea that Jagmeet Singh is the boss of Rachel Notley, I'm not even sure Jagmeet Singh would fit in the current Alberta NDP. And Rachel Notley sure wouldn't fit into the federal NDP. But the reason that they were able to occupy the center and move towards the center is, as I explained right off the top, Kenny moved the UCP further to the right, um, to the days of the early Klein years, or to the late stages of the Manning years, depending on which timetable you want to use. Daniel Smith has taken that right-wing party and moved it even further to the right. So we have had, if there's been a partisan sorting federally, it's been even more extreme in, in Alberta. And so it's not just that we have a two-party system with differing parties. 
the contrast between those two parties is is very very striking with the exception of this current budget where there's a lot more similarity but that's because there's an election in 90 days i think uh post election you're going to see those divisions uh come back much sharper well it's interesting you bring up the fact that daniel smith has moved the party farther to the right i don't think that there's many people who would contest that um some people might even say a little bit more to the Aberhart side of things, but um, and I want to ask you about this. We saw, I think, a manifestation of that to some degree with the release of the budget this week where and I get Todd Lowen is not uh, he's not the UCP person anymore. He's he's an independent. Drew, Drew Barnes. Todd Lowen right. is Sorry, I got it backwards. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Drew Barnes is not UCP. Todd Lowen definitely is, which was the point that I was going to get to, and I put the cart before the horse. But Drew Barnes introduced Tamara Leach and her lawyer friends. Things are very complicated there because obviously Tamara Leach was one of the key figures in the, uh, I'm still committed to calling it on occupation of Ottawa. Um, And it's understandable that there's... Limited control, I'll say cautiously, that Danielle Smith could directly exercise over Drew Barnes. I still think that there's questions about the Speaker of the House and, and all of that, because I know that, that who gets introduced is, is done ahead of time. But we then saw Todd Lowen, not Drew Barnes, <laughs> Todd Lowen introduce uh, Marco uh, Van Hugenboys, uh, who was a key figure in the border blockade, which arguably had some more violent undertones. What, what do you make of that? So there, there, you've thrown a whole lot there. So I'll begin. I'm driving. I, I, I've been back and forth to Edmonton twice this week. And I'm driving back on Thursday. And what I like to do is that's when I listen to podcasts. So I'm listening to... Ryan Jesperson's show, and he had Rick Bell on, and he had um, uh, Michael Solberg, uh, and I was actually on a panel with Michael on, on Tuesday, and Kristen Rawer, and asking about this to Mary Leach, and they all dismissed it. They said, this is just a Twitter thing, no, no big deal. Drew Barnes is an independent. Drew Barnes is going to do what Drew Barnes does. This has nothing to do with the UCP. And I'm in the car by myself, but I'm arguing with the radio, <laughs> saying, no, uh, yes, Drew Barnes is an independent, but look at the connections with the UCP and the convoy and Coots, right? So Todd Lowen went to Ottawa in his camper. He participated in the convoy. He was never charged, but he participated in that. Uh, Grant Hunter went to Coots with his grandkids and had a photo op. Shane Getson participated in some of the Edmonton rallies. Danielle Smith has made one, two, 10, 15, 35 comments uh, about COVID. Uh, And uh, every time there's a clarification or a misspoke, it usually involves around COVID. So, you know, amnesty for COVID charges, like Art Pazowski. What was Art Pazowski being uh, charged with? Inciting violence where? at Coots. Um, and so to say that, well, Drew Barnes is an independent, this doesn't reflect the, the views of the UCP. I would have liked to have seen the UCP benches 
uh, and the NDP benches when these people were introduced. Were they clapping? How enthusiastically were they clapping? And the reason for that is maybe you're just being polite, you know, and you're you're clapping along, you know, for an introduction, or maybe you're really enthusiastic because you really support uh, Tamara Leach. So yes, this is an independent character, but the record of Smith and the convoys and Coots, I think we've got a pretty good record on, as well as significant members of her caucus. And I've just rattled off just a few of them. Yeah, well, it's interesting that you say that because uh, in the video clip, you can hear it's definitely more than uh, Drew Barnes, who's uh, applauding for Tamara Leach and her lawyer friend. And there was definitely a lot of commentary that we saw on social media from Janice Irwin, no less, that was very clear that there were UCP MLAs and ministers who stood up and gave Tamara Leach a standing ovation. So this this isn't just a, oh, it's Drew being Drew, it's Drew being Drew, and there was a significant contingent of the UCP that said, oh, I like what you're serving up. So it's, it, it's I can understand how there are some people who might want to say, oh, no, it's it's just Drew being Drew, but when you've got all of this applause and people standing up for. And it's person. not just the applause. It's not just what happened in the moment. It's what's been occurring within that party. You know, the uh, Jason Kenny before Coots, um, the convoy was on its way to Ottawa or had just arrived to Ottawa. And he gave a press conference and then he went to Washington where he defended the convoy. And he defended the convoy because he thought they were there to oppose Justin Trudeau not realizing they were also there to oppose Jason Kenney. Um, and so, uh, yeah, uh, the, the conservatives, uh, both federally and provincially, have been playing footsies with the convoy. Uh, just look at the, the meeting the three conservative MPs had, you know, with, with Kirsten Anderson. Look at, at, at the, uh, the dinner meetings that... Uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, the former leader had, uh, you know, Andrew Shear marching with them um, and Pierre Polyev bringing coffee and donuts. Yeah. Know, this was not bouncy castles. Tamara Leach is facing some really, really serious charges. Um, and she has spent significant time in jail already because she keeps violating bail conditions. I, when I saw your tweet about that, I had flashbacks to the Saskatchewan throne speech where one of the last parties brought in as his guest, Colin Thatcher. Now, Colin Thatcher is a convicted murderer, uh, but he's been paroled. So has he served his time? Has, you know, that was the argument they made. And it was like, oh my God, Dwayne Brad has gone off his deep end. He's comparing a convicted murderer to someone who's innocent until proven guilty. Tamara Leach never killed anybody, but she was inciting violence that thankfully nobody died in. And she is facing serious jail time. She is not just a grandmother and freedom fighter. Oh, for sure not. Like I, in in after that, I went back and I was reviewing some of the the video footage that exists. And on the day that the the police said this is an illegal protest, we're going to start arresting y'all. Uh, Tamara Leach is on video where she's told, you know, the police have arrested these people. You know this, and she says, "Yep." Well, what's your advice? And her response is, "Hold the line." So there's. Yeah, she's trying to say that the hold the line is not, you know, physical instructions to, you know, challenge the police. It was stay with your principles. We'll see how that holds up in in court. 
Yeah. Um, I have I have questions about that, especially but, her behavior since the block, uh, the the convoy. But which I, I is think why she has been violating uh, bail conditions. I think it's also important to highlight, though, like I said earlier, it wasn't just Drew Barnes who invited convoy folks who are facing charges to the legislature. We saw Todd Lowen invited uh, Mark Van Hugenboss, who is he does have charges pending. His court date, I think, is coming up in September. And one would think that, I don't know, maybe Daniel Smith, because... Todd Lowen is not just a UCP MLA. He's a minister. So here's my thoughts on, on Todd Lowen. He probably paid the biggest price for standing up to Kenny, right? He gets kicked out of caucus. Drew Barnes had been challenging Kenny for a while, but once Lowen crossed that line as caucus chair with that letter, which I think showed a lot of courage, uh, political courage, Lowen took, paid a price and then they just threw Drew back in. There's a reason that Lowen got reinstated and Drew Barnes did not. And by the way, after they threw them out, then they were challenged even more and they stopped doing that. But uh, Lowen was clearly an ally of Daniel Smith. You, you saw that during the leadership race. They participated in the prosperity uh, project uh, debate that, with Rebel Media. They were two of the three that were there. His supporters went to Smith um, and he's been rewarded with a cabinet post. But I will say Tuesday morning, I'm in Edmonton and at this tourism summit. And before my panel, they had the premier and Todd Lowen speak. And if you didn't know any of this other background stuff about Todd Lowen, you'd have come back quite impressed. He knew the tourism file. He's got a deep interest in that. And you could say, well, it's hunting camps and campgrounds, but that's what tourism is. Uh, and he sounded very reasonable. He sounded very thoughtful. Uh, you could imagine him being good MLA. And then later that day, the, the COVID stuff comes out. Uh, and, and I would say the same thing about Danielle Smith. Uh, she was incredibly charming. She won over the room. She seemed to be having her fingers on the, on the file. Um, and then once again, we, we get into COVID and sovereignty stuff, right? So, uh, that's, that's kind of the interesting things around, around Todd, Todd Lowen. And bear in mind, I don't think Danielle Smith becomes premier without her opposition to COVID. Right. Yeah. And, and it was narrow. It was very narrow on how she won. Uh, and so all of those people that helped drive out um, Jason Kenney, like the Take Back Alberta group, all harnessed themselves and supported Smith. Now, this this pivots into the, one of the other questions that I wanted to get before we get back to the book, because I do want to do that. For, um, but. <sighs> You know, there were a lot of people, we saw a lot of NDP supporters, a lot of progressives saying, um, you know what, it's best for the province if Danielle Smith wins because she's so out there that it's going to guarantee an NDP win. But I think you just highlighted a really important piece that maybe has been overlooked and perhaps underestimated in that Danielle Smith, as much as she has a proclivity for using words in dangerous combinations, I'll say, um, as much as she does that, she is 
a very compelling speaker. She is incredibly effective in person. She is very, very effective at being disarming and presenting herself as as being sort of that humble down home on just like y'all. Do you think like I guess it's a two part question, unsurprisingly coming from me. But the first piece is, do you think that the NDP and, and the people who are like Danielle Smith will be the best thing that's happened to the NDP overestimated how much of a a boon it would be for them. And secondary to that, how do you, if you were to say to the NDP, this is how you need to address this, what would that be? So without a doubt, Daniel Smith has gifts. um, And, and that is why she is, she is premier. She, she also has faults, but I mean, the, the gifts are her communication ability uh, her meeting in person, she can be, as I said, incredibly charming. Um, and uh, but the other is she listens, um, which is the sign of a good talk show host. You know, you listen to your callers, and so she she is listening to caucus. She is giving them a voice. Sure, she expanded cabinet, but there are a lot of cabinet ministers that didn't have much authority in the Kenny years. So this is all seen as as refreshing. Uh, I think you're going to see a lot less of Daniel Smith. You already have seen a lot less of her. I think they're going to try to keep her in a, in a box uh, because <clears throat> she does get herself into trouble the longer she, she speaks because she likes to tell the audience she's speaking to sometimes what they want to hear, not realizing that there's this larger audience watching. And, and that's where she gets into, uh, gets into trouble. I will say, if Travis Taves had won the leadership, the UCP wins uh, majority government in May. I I have no doubt about that because he'll have had a, uh, he'll basically promise boring government. I'm a boring guy. Times are good. No drama. And all of those reluctant conservatives in in Calgary in particular would all race to, to Travis Taves. The wild card in this is Smith and what will Smith do and what will she say and how will she withstand a debate with Rachel Notley and all of those things. That's what makes this uh, very interesting um, and scary. Yeah. What would you what would your advice be to the NDP on how to handle the Daniel Smith's UCP? Like it's because it's to me, I look at. There's there's multiple Danielle Smiths depending on the day because she can be incredibly charismatic. She can be incredibly charming. But if you piss her off, she can get mean real fast. And we saw that in Fort McMurray where she went after Leela here. And yeah, yeah. And I've, I've seen some of that uh, in person. <laughs> so um, that can occur. <laughs> so I'll go back to when I, I heard Jesperson's program and, and Bell and Solberg going on about well, they tried to go after Kenny's character in 2019, and that didn't work, right? So why would they do that again this time? There are huge differences between what they did in 2019 and what I think is the opportunity in 2023. First, what, the attacks that they were making on Kenny were decades old. I, I think they're relevant, but the average voter is going to go, maybe he was a bit further away, but... You know, people didn't accept same-sex marriage in in 1992 or 1993. Bill Clinton didn't, 
Barack Obama didn't, you know, so he wasn't that far out of the, the mainstream. Now, some of the stuff with AIDS in San Francisco, I think he was, but that's a long time ago. The difference with Smith is this is weeks, months. That's that's a big difference. The other is that they portrayed Jason Kenney um, as an SOB. Uh, and I can uh, I can remember it. I, I uh, uh, was working on some focus groups in the lead up to the 2019 election. And we did focus groups on, with conservatives, with centrists and with progressives. And in the conservative focus group, there was this gentleman who said, look, I don't like Jason Kenney. Jason Kenney's an asshole, but we need an asshole right now. You know, times are tough. We need someone to stand up to all of these groups that are taking Alberta down. Jason Kenney's our guy. Fine. That's one of the reasons the attacks didn't work because it was about, well, he's not a nice person, but he's effective at what he does. Uh, this case, this is raising questions about Smith's judgment, uh, about her trust, and about her competency. No one doubted the competency of Jason Kenney. People are doubting the competency of Danielle Smith. And I think if, if, if I was advising the NDP, and I am not, I am not a supporter of any party, uh, but that's, she's vulnerable there. Uh, much more, and to say, well, they tried it with Kenny and it didn't work. Those were two very different circumstances. Uh, there are concerns, and that line of attack worked in 2012. You know, the Redford playbook, not the Redford style, but the playbook that the Redford campaign used in 2012 was quite effective. Right at the early stages of the campaign, Allison Redford said something along the lines of, Look at the team I've got. Look at the candidates I have. Media, please investigate my candidates. What she was really saying was, let's investigate the Wild Rose candidates. And sure enough, they found some. In unwinnable ridings, Alan Huntsberger was never going to win a riding for the Wild Rose Party in Edmonton, but he caused them incredible damage. Well, there are candidates being nominated by the UCP right now, uh, some in winnable ridings, but some in absolutely unwinnable ridings who have very controversial pasts are much more extreme than Daniel Smith. Go after them and see how Smith responds. Because if she had thrown Huntsberger under the bus, that story dies. But she went out and said, free speech, he's got the right to think what he wants. You know, uh, I'm not denying climate change. I'm just saying there's a lot of questions. That's not going to work just as it didn't work in 2012. Do you think that there's room for Like one of the things that I've been curious about, and, and we're see, it seems to be a theme <laughs> of the Smith government so far, and I'd really like to get your take on this, is that I think that there's definitely a cause for a perception that smith is in this for herself and that she's in it for her friends we've seen this with our star we've seen this with uh multiple other avenues that she's pursued we've also seen it with um the i mean the gofundme thing there's still a lot of questions that that are unanswered and that's, and that's the second attack line okay and the second attack line, and I'm going to quote my, my good friend Janet Brown, is that 
entitlement and corruption was the kryptonite of the Progressive Conservative Party. People threw out Jim Prentice because of that. He wore that bag. Um, and whether that was all him or whether that was the legacy, some combination, um, I try to tease that out in, in my chapter in the Orange Chinook. But you look at, at Smith now, she's rewarding her loyalists. The amount of people around her from the Wild Rose days, Rob Anderson, Bruce McAllister, Preston Manning, Dave Yeager, uh, you know, the list goes on. Um, uh, Matt, Matt Solberg, uh, it, it's a long group because she's loyal. Uh, and there have been some really ugly uh, things. Uh, sole source contracts, uh, the R-Star program, which has been delayed until after the election. You know, uh, there's a lot of money flowing from those companies, not to Daniel Smith, but to Smith-affiliated third-party advertisers. And so that's the second rung, is to say, you guys were really... At, meeting Albertans, you could, people were really upset with the entitlement and corruption of the PCs. And so was Daniel Smith, by the way, in 2012, 2013, do it again, right? She is, she is doing that again. You know, uh, the, the failing to call a by-election in Calgary Elbow, all of those things can all be brought up. And there's always a tweet, there's always a column, there's always a speech from former Daniel Smith. And so I think those are the two areas that they're vulnerable on. Uh, they're not vulnerable, I'm sorry, on the budget. Uh, I don't get this best, most expensive summer ever. Um, you know, you uh, it, it's a weird situation where the NDP is arguing against the UC budget, UCP budget using UCP talking points. And the UCP is defending their budget using NDP talking points. It's, it's a uh, curious land, which shows why we're, we're in election uh, less than three months out. I think it's what is being delayed. Pensions are being delayed. Our star is being delayed. Police are being delayed. Uh, affordability checks are being delayed. That's, I, I wouldn't even call it a hidden agenda. It's not a hidden agenda. Yeah, it's, I mean, the 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 most expensive summer to me is is such a weird talking point because it really does seem to concede while they're still going to be in power. Um, yeah, which, and, and this is a big spending budget. Now you can argue about whether the money is in the right areas or not, but it's a big spending budget. So much so that if we didn't have eighteen billion dollars in non-renewable resource royalty rates we'd be running deficits. Uh, that's how big the spending is. It's tough for the NDP to criticize a high spending budget. And if, I mean, according to Mr. Or Dr. Toombs analysis, it's the highest spending budget that we've seen in decades. Yeah, it's a percentage of GDP. And yeah, you've got to go back a long, long time. Yeah. Speaking of going back, let's get back to the book. I'm curious, any feedback? from Mr. Kenny, has he read the book? Has he said, hey, I love this chapter, can I get a signed copy? He's been pretty quiet. He's been extremely quiet. Um, he was not quiet when he was, uh, after he announced his resignation in May, up until he left 
the premiership, he was not quiet. Uh, you know, he was very critical of the Sovereignty Act. Um, he, uh, he spent all of the surplus. You know, this whole stuff about, well, we put $2 billion in the Heritage Trust Fund. Yeah, a couple months ago, you pulled $1.7 billion out of it because Kenny had emptied the kitty before Smith could get there. So uh, he is uncharacteristically quiet. He is well-read. He likes to read. He is an avid reader. I would hope that he would read this if he was self-reflective. And, and I'm not sure there's enough self-reflection in, in him. So I, I think of when Jeremy Farkas lost the mayor's race and lost his job in public. And he went through a period of self-reflection, you know, um, with his long hike of the Pacific Coast Trail. Kenny's not a hiker. He's not going to go on a hike. But he is a reader. So I would, I would hope that he would read the, the book. It's not an attack on, on Kenny. There are parts of the book that praise some of the policies that the government brought in. Um, so uh, maybe it would give him a better understanding of, of what happened to him. Because often you're, you're in the middle of it. You're in the moment. You don't realize what is going on uh, around you and the forces around you. So I, I hope he would. I would think that, you know, not many people get the opportunity to have the their biggest decisions analyzed and uh, interpreted by some of the leading minds of the field that you're operating in. I, I, I think I would think that that's a bit of a gift, but that's me. Yeah. Um, and if you want to know why your great career came to a halt, um, why your plan and I believe that this was the plan, is he realized in 2016, Trudeau's going to be here a while. I don't want to be sitting on the opposition benches. I've been in government for 10 years, and being in government's a lot more fun than being in opposition. I'm going to go back home. I'm going to rescue Alberta from the socialists. I am, uh, and then uh, I'm going to wait it out, and then I'm going to come back. And I will be the conquering hero um, and you could see he tried to keep up a national profile throughout his time as premier. And that was to keep his options open. I think that door has closed. Uh, it's tough to run for the leadership of the Conservative Party when the most conservative province has turned its back on you. But I think that was the, that was the plan. And so if you want to know why you went from being the most powerful conservative in the country in 2019 to you know, being a consultant at Bennett Jones, this might help. Do you think that there is a road at all for Kenny to come back? Like, I, I, oh, as you were, as, um, it, the, the quick answer would be absolutely not. But look at Daniel Smith. Does, you know, Dan, the, the, the people who are supporting Smith the most were the ones that hated her the most in 2014 and 2015. So, I mean, Smith's comeback is the most incredible political comeback. It's not that she lost an election. It was, you know, the floor crossing and all of that. You know, in the, in the early days after the, the, the election defeat in 2015, I would be on panels with, with Smith on Global. 
and they the calls would be coming in. Get that bleakety bleak woman off the air, and she's an embarrassment. And and in the first while that she had her talk show, same sort of thing. But she was hired because people were listening to her. They might have been hate listening, but they listened to her. But it also allowed her to go on a multi-year public apology tour for the floor crossing. Um, and so as a result of that, she started to regain the, uh, the, the, the trust. Just as I speculate about what Kenny's master plan was in coming back to Alberta, I don't think Smith thought she was going to win the leadership. She had left radio, uh, but she had a subscription only. She was on, you know, uh, the, the, the speaker circuit. I think this was improving the Smith brand and, and getting subscribers and keeping her as a voice. And then momentum started to build. And next thing you know, she is, uh, she's premier. Like it's, if this, if, if this was a work of fiction, you wouldn't believe it. If, if not for Trump. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that's true. Yeah. Um, well, and that's yeah, the difference. No, I, I mean, there are, you know, how many Trump books? I, I mean, I've probably got 10 on my shelf. Uh, everybody's written a Trump book uh, and, and Trump doesn't read. So he's not going to read any of those, but this is one book about Kenny who is a reader. So maybe he will read it. Uh, yeah, it's interesting that you, I mean, in, I, re, I had a brief conversation with Daniel Smith in 2021, um, <laughs> where she said that she would never run for office again because she believed that she was unelectable. So I yeah. think, that, oh yeah, she was. I, I think that you're bang on that, that, that this whole situation is probably a bit of a, a surprise for her in a lot of ways. Um, is there anything else you want people to know about the book? When's the second printing coming? Because if if you're already sold out, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's it's being printed right now. But the good news is, you can get a PDF copy of the entire book for free. You can go to the University of Calgary Press and you can download it for free. And this is part of a program called Open Access. So. Um, a bit more on, I don't think it's a very good business model to be giving away your product uh, for free. But the whole point of this was to get people to read it. So the, uh, the Faculty of Arts at Mount Royal University has a book series called Arts in Action. And they, they publish a book through the University of Calgary Press once a year. And Blue Storm is the book for 2023. Interestingly, in 2019, it was the Orange Chinook. So I've got two of the books in the, in the book series. But it's, it's based on an open access model. The difference with Orange Chinook is they made it open access about six months after the book was printed. In this case, they waited about two weeks uh, to do so. And um, the book was not written to make money. Uh, I have a full-time job. The book, if, if people read the book, that is the best gift that I can have. And if they can argue with me and say, instead of just looking at the title and looking at the name and saying, well, the book is trash, um, you know, if they actually read it and come up with criticisms, great. That's the way it should be. I, I would still, even if, if people do download the PDF, I would still argue that they should purchase. I, I take a very Vonnegutian approach to reading in that the, there's, there's something intrinsically 
meditative about turning the pages of a book as opposed to just swiping a screen. Oh, uh, absolutely. <laughs> and um, I like books. Um, you can see the bookshelf I've got here. I've got an equivalent series of bookshelves at my home office. Uh, and I put more value on a physical copy than I do on a download copy. But I mean, I still get hard copies of the newspaper. So uh, I'm, I'm an old guy, I guess. Fair enough. You can't, and you can't sign a PDF. You can, however, sign the book. Yeah. Saying, and you can hold it and you can throw it and you can take pictures with it. You can do none of that with PDF. So, but if you're a student or you're on a low income budget and you're interested in the book, download it for free. There you go. Where do people go to download it? Uh, the University of Calgary Press. It's important that you say the whole thing instead of the acronym. I just got that. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, I want to just take a quick sec to acknowledge one other thing. You kind of alluded it alluded to it at the beginning, um, but uh, and, and again, I, I come from a little bit of a bias because I had the privilege of being able to attend the the book launch and I got to see the emotion in the room. The book is dedicated to someone. Yeah, to David Terrace, and uh, the uh, I hope you read the preface. Uh, because sure there was a nice tribute to to David in that in that preface. So I mentioned that Orange Chinook was his idea, uh, the involvement he had with the the Blue Storm. We had an authors workshop um, in June of 2021. So we'd already picked people to write chapters, and what David's style was is we'd go to the Banff Center. That's what we did for the Orange Chinook. And we did it for other books that he was part of as well. And we would spend two days at the BAMP Center critiquing each other's work and improving on it. And it, it made for a great environment. <clears throat> we didn't have the budget in 2021. And quite frankly, we were in COVID in 2021. So I thought we would just get rid of the workshop. Um, and there's a lot of edited books that are done that way. You write your chapter in a silo, you send it to the editor, you don't know what the other contributors are doing. And the contributors all wrote back and said, no, we want a virtual workshop, even if we can't get together. So we organized the workshop. David and I argued about you know, the structure of the workshop and the themes we were gonna have and all of this other stuff. In fact, the chapter, and this shows you how far along we have gone, um, he was going to write a chapter on the decline of Alberta, right? Uh, that this was pre-oil spike in 2022. This had been the longest period of, of a decline. Was this going to be permanent? And so that was going to be one of the themes of the book, is how Alberta could manage with this decline thesis. And he calls me up the day before the workshop uh, to say he was going to be sick and he wasn't going to be able to make it. And just the way he said that, uh, I wasn't going to push him, but I knew it wasn't a cough and it wasn't a cold, that this was something serious. So, okay, we have that, we announce it, we go ahead with the workshop, and then I wait a week. And then I call him. And I said, you know, David, you're going to have to tell me what's, what's up. And that's when he told me he had cancer. And... Uh, 
period. So that's June of 2021. Uh, and within the next year, um, he basically, he didn't drop off the, the planet. We would regularly talk and it was interesting. You know, we would be on the phone and he would go, you know, and I would, I would, uh, I would go, well, how are you feeling? He'd give me his health update. And then he'd always pivot and go, well, more importantly, how are you doing, Dwayne? And so I go, I'm not dying, David. Like, you know, I'm, I'm having, things are pretty good over here. Uh, and back and forth and back and forth. And, and uh, when he could, he would read a draft chapter and, and make a comment, but his energy level just wasn't there. And in June of 2022, uh, he calls me up again, and, and, you know, when I ask him how he's doing, I didn't get the same David, and he goes, well, I'm going into hospice, uh, you know, in the next couple of days, uh, I've got less than two weeks, uh, and it's like, okay, that's, that's not good, uh, his, his head was still sharp, he never lost his brain functions, it was just the rest of his body. So his kids had all come back and gathered around and, and they knew the, the end was, uh, was, was there. And in fact, one of my colleagues, Sally Haney, who's not in the book, uh, but is in the communications department, ended up interviewing him on his uh, porch just before he went into hospice, uh, which was about a half hour interview on his career. Uh, and they both knew why they were doing it. And he, he was in great spirits and all of that. But then David goes, uh, and I have to tell you, Dwayne, you've got to take my name off the book. And he goes, I just, I haven't done enough work on this. I am not an editor. You can't have me in this book. And it's like, <laughs> well, thanks for the request, David. Uh, we're not going to do that. <laughs> there would have been no book without you. And um, and he, he passed. Uh, that was the last conversation I had with him. And so we had a... Um, uh, David's Jewish, and so they have to have a funeral very quickly. Uh, I was at the funeral. Um, it was also streamed. Um, there were lots of prominent people who who showed up, but a lot of people missed it because it just happened so quickly. Um, and uh, I even went to the to the burial site. I'd never been to a Jewish funeral before. And of course, it's raining, like in every movie. When you're at the the, the cemetery, it has to rain. But there was a good friend of mine um, who I knew in a different way was out there. And he explained the whole ritual to, to this uh, non-Jew. Non and, uh, and it was a very lovely ceremony. Well, when we all gathered again, um, we thought we were going to have a tribute to David. And we had it at the Wild Rose Brewery because that's where all big Mount Royal events occur. And uh, his wife, Joan, was there, and the book had just arrived that morning. And the first uh, box, the first book out of the box, uh, Rob um, Hubert, who's on the editorial board and knew David at the UFC, brought it, and we signed it, and we gave it to Joan. So his, his uh, widow got, the, uh, got the, uh, the first copy. And I, and I hope that this is a fitting tribute to to what was a great man. There's no better way to to I think wrap things up than with that story because it's it's I mean the the tribute that's included in the the beginning of the book is is quite powerful nowhere near as quite as powerful as what you just shared there. Um, so I want to just say thank you so much for taking the time to to chat with us today. 
Uh, thank you so much for the, the book. I've read parts of it. I'm looking forward to reading the rest of it. Um, I'm going to give you There's the There's a really one. good chapter on climate policy in there, <laughs> you know, that you might want to read. Of course, that's the piece I wrote. Is there anything else you want people to hear, Dr. Bratt? Uh, it, it's a thick volume. Um, you know, it's 500 pages, but it covers pretty much any aspect that you want. So it covers the election, it covers healthcare, it covers education, it covers finances, it covers the internal workings uh, of the UCP, it covers policing, it covers the fair deal, it covers pipelines, it covers climate, uh, it covers, as we said, COVID. Uh, it talks about, you know, the social media and polling and the blue truck. And so there's, there's a lot in here. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Nick. As always, if you appreciate the kind of content that we're trying to produce here at The Breakdown, we would love it if you swung by our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash thebreakdownab and signed up for a small monthly sponsorship of the work that we're trying to do here. It is because of the support that we receive from our Patreon sponsors that we're able to continually up our game, and it is tremendously appreciated. So I want to throw a big thank you out to them. And you can go ahead and visit that website and join and support us as well because we need all the help we can get. Thank you so much for your attention. Thank you so much for listening and being a part of these important conversations. And we will see you next time on The Breakdown.